Morning, all. Morning to those of you watching online as well. Happy fall. I think Jason already said that this morning. We are in our third message here. If you have a copy of the Bible, we'll get there in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are still in the first chapter uh, this morning. Let me begin with a story. I I, uh, had a conversation um, this summer with a lifelong, or I should say a, a friend that I've known my entire adult life. And it was an intense conversation about, of all things, politics. And uh, he's not a church-going guy, this friend, but in many ways we share the same politics. So in that sense, it, it was intense, but it wasn't like we were all over uh, different parts of the map. But he was very frustrated with me, even though I think in many ways our politics were similar, because he said, well, if you, if you really have the same feeling that I do about these issues, about our country. That's what he was talking about. Where is our country? I've, we, I feel like I'm no longer um, a citizen of the same country. So much has changed. He said, if you really feel that way, if you believe the same things that I do about what's happening in some ways in our country, you'd be a lot more frustrated. You'd be a lot more fired up. and I mean, You'd be as angry, maybe, as I am about what's going on. I don't sense that in you. That was his frustration. And I said, well, I appreciate that. I do feel, I do have strong feelings on these issues. But for me, I think he knew this. We've known each other for our, my entire adult life. I said, there's something beyond politics for me. That's not the end for me. I happen to believe in um, a sovereign God. He knew that. He knows my story. And I believe God is sovereign. What does that mean? That God I believe in a God who created me, who created you, who is all-powerful. That's what sovereign means. God is all-powerful, and he is over all of the powers that are in the world. And that gives me some hope. my, My frustrations are anchored at his feet, not simply at the feet of the men and the women in office at any given point in time. You say, well, I don't believe in God. I said, I know you don't. I knew that. And usually that's where the conversation would end, okay? But he said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, if there was a God like you believe um, in, why is the world such a mess, okay? In other words, if there is a God, why is the world the way that it is? And I said, well, you know, um, that's a big question. And, you know... um, There's a lot about that question I can't answer for you. And he said, typical cop out. (laughs) Um, But I said, okay. He started this conversation. And I said, let me ask you a question. Your son, when he was young, you know, five, six years old, I imagine there were a lot of things about the way that the world works that you could not answer for him, right? Whether it's about what adults do, what adults talk about, what's in the medicine cabinet, whatever the case may be, there were a lot of things that your son asked you when he was five years old that you could not give him answers to. You could not, he would not understand the explanations of your answers. Now, in the case of your son, The gap was largely made up. By the time your son's 20 years old, most of those questions, not maybe all of them, most of those questions can be answered. Right? 
But what you had to say to your son when he was five is, you just need to trust me. But I said the gap between your son at five and your son in 20, the gap between you and me and the sovereign God I'm telling you I believe in is far, far, far greater. Because the, 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 the God that created the world, the God who created the universe, the God who created you, the God who created me, the God who created 20,000 species of fish and on and on and on, the gap is so much bigger, okay? You'd have to be like God for, to be able to understand the answers to some of the questions that you have. And at some point, this is my story, I said. At some point, you're just going to have to decide to trust him and allow him to reveal himself to you in some ways that you can believe. I think the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians here in this passage where we're going to read in a minute. But he's speaking to a community, right? The people in Corinth, we talked about this last few weeks, are coming out of a world where if God was to be known, he was going to be known, it was going to be through the pursuit of some kind of higher knowledge, right? Remember this, if the, the people in Corinth in the first century, this is the world out of which came Socrates, out of which came Plato, out of which came Aristotle. This very geography, this part of the world, those big ideas, those higher learnings, those philosophical thinking has resonance to the way the world thinks today thousands of years later. This is that world. Asking questions that you and I, about God, right, that you and I do not have the capacity to answer. You'd have to be like God to understand the answers to some of your questions. So the Apostle Paul is speaking to these people. And he's saying, listen, God works in a completely different way. God decided to do things differently. Because if, if knowing God... That's what Paul's going to say in so many words. If knowing God was achieved through this pursuit of higher knowledge, if knowing God was at the end of this understanding, this deep philosophical pursuit of greater understanding, he said, then the people in any society who happened to be of this elite group of people, the people who had the best educations, the people who had the greatest access, the people that were the smartest, the most intellectual, they would therefore be the superior people and they would be ruling it over everybody else, but God doesn't work that way, okay? That's what Paul is trying to say here. There's a different wisdom. God doesn't, God's ways are not our ways. God's wisdom is not our wisdom. He wants to confront this wisdom that was not just active in the world, but also active in the church in his day. Now let's pick up. 1 Corinthians, where we left off, Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, in a message titled, Wisdom and Sovereignty. Wisdom and Sovereignty. For the message of the cross, 
is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, excuse me, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Wisdom and sovereignty. A couple things he wants to say to this congregation. Talking to Christians here, as I am this morning, I think, for the most part in this room. The gospel is a new way of knowing. Okay, It's a new way of knowing. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? He's talking to this very you know, intellectually stimulated community, as we just mentioned. He's saying, listen, you tried your best. These people in this community tried their best to find out and understand who God is. God does not, is not found that way, right? That's not where you find God. God is not found at the top of a ladder of intellectual pursuit. God is not there in this exalted knowledge. And if you work hard enough and you're around the right amount of people and you go to the right learning institutions, you'll find him there. That's not how God is found. The gospel is a new way of knowing. The gospel really talked about here as the message of the cross. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's another way of saying the gospel because he's trying to make a point. The message of the cross. Now you and I, we've been Christians for a while. There's been 2,000 years of history. And for you and I to talk about the message of the cross, it sort of resonates with us. Okay? But we have to put ourselves in the mindset of someone who's first receiving the message of the Christianity. The message of the cross was, was foolishness, right? I mean, today we have crosses here in our, in our sanctuary, dotted along churches all over the world, all over everywhere, is the cross. It's become the symbol of the Christian faith because it represents the sacrifice of Jesus. But it wasn't here. In history, crosses were not seen. Crosses were not seen as the symbol of the Christian faith for another hundred years, give or take, in the history of the early church. Why? Because it, for, 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 for generations, the cross was understood as Jesus wasn't the first person to die on a cross. The cross was a form of capital punishment all over the Roman Empire, which had the biggest footprint in the world. Wherever you went, along roads and highways, people who were criminals of the highest you know, uh, uh, crimes of the state were put up on crosses and left there as a message to deter people from bad behavior. And you understood that the person on that cross, maybe you didn't know exactly what their crime was, it was serious and the consequences was great. If your brother or sister was on the cross, trust me, you'd be embarrassed, you'd be ashamed, you, you wouldn't be uh, making a big deal of it. Okay? 
So all of a sudden for this symbol, which was part of the culture in the Roman Empire, to become, well, the gospel is the message of the cross, okay, people thought it was crazy. The Jews thought it was a stumbling block. There's reasons for that. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says anyone that is, that is uh, um, uh, hung on a tree is cursed of God. The Jews thought this was a, a, a crucified Messiah. That's, that's, that's a total contradiction in terms. And for the Greeks or the Gentiles, synonym, the, the broader world, a crucified Messiah who's, who's saying this is, what, this, this is the height of human knowledge is God sends his son to die in the world, it's ridiculous. Let me say something. The message of the cross, the gospel is a new way of knowing. The gospel is not a body of religious knowledge, okay? The gospel is not moral teaching. The gospel is not a scheme for a better life, right? Sometimes you go to a bookstore, you know, in the religious section, you'd almost think that the Christian life is a scheme for a better life. Seven ways to do this, three ways to do this. You know, as if God was your personal assistant instead of the sovereign God of the world who created everything. Okay? It's not a scheme for a better life. What is the gospel? It's an announcement of God's intervention in the world for the sake of the world. That's what the gospel is. It's announcement of an intervention. Yet that intervention did not come the way anybody wanted or expected. The Jews wanted a sign. Why did they want a sign? Their whole history was about signs. The exodus was a sign. The pillar of fire in the, from the sky was a sign, right? The, the, the opening of the Jordan was a sign. The, the, the elimination of whole armies when the Lord went out with the people of Israel, those were signs. They had to, Jesus, show us a sign, right? That was the way they looked for it. Religious people were looking for signs, past and present. And the Greeks, which is really a way of talking about the Gentiles, the, the whole world of Hellenism, the culture of the world, they were looking for philosophical teaching. Where is the wise man? Where is the philosopher? Give us something higher learning. Don't give me this basic 101, you know, God died on a cross for your sins. That's ridiculous. Give me some deeper teaching, okay? The world of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. He didn't come in the way anybody wanted him to come. But the intervention was the cross, a Christ Messiah. We preach, verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greek looks for wisdom. But guess what, Paul says, our message is we preach Christ crucified, right? We preach Christ crucified. But let me say something also that's here, so big so big the cross was not only the means of human salvation now now we've caught up with that that's why we have one i mean now we get it we understand that the cross was was necessary absolutely necessary all sin to come short of the glory of god from mother Teresa to charles manson some of you are like who is mother Teresa? who's charles manson but anyway you get the idea from the the best person to the worst person all have sinned and come short of the cross. The cross is absolutely necessary. And we get that now. Jesus Christ died for our sins. But the cross is not only a means of salvation and forgiveness, although it was that. 
It is, it was, it is a revelation of the deepest truth about the character of God. The gospel is a new way of knowing. The cross isn't just something God did. He solved a problem. He fixed a flat tire. Okay? The cross is not simply an Ill, uh, something that was done to solve a problem, our sin. The cross is the ultimate revelation of who God is. You understand what I'm saying? I want to know who God is. Well, I mean, to go to a book. Where is the wise man of this age? Where is the philosopher? Where is the, the smart people? I want to know who God is. Well, do your homework, read your Bible, but if you want to know who God is, in the best way I can explain it, the best, the best way we have, because we're not God, right? We got a long way. We're, we're too far removed. It's sacrificial love given out. He opened not his mouth. He didn't answer nothing. You know, he, he said to Pilate, uh, not, not a word came out of his mouth. And he let them put him up on a cross and be crucified, sacrificed for something he never did. He did it for your sake. That's who God is. Okay, that's what he's saying. Okay, that's what Paul's trying to say. If you want to truly know who God is, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, right? The truest thing about him is a look at the cross. Richard Hayes, just a commentator, a, a, a Christian a, a, a scholar. The cross is the key to understanding reality. To enter the world of the gospel is to undergo a conversion of the imagination. To see all values transformed by the death of Jesus on the cross. He's saying, listen, it's more than just the way that your sins are forgiven. That's huge. But don't stop there. To enter the world of the gospel is to undergo a conversion of the imagination. It's a whole new way of knowing and seeing. To see all values transformed by the death of Jesus. Jesus. What, you see, what does that really mean? Well, what do you see in the cross is this, when you say it's a revelation of God, and how do I see it as a lens to transform my values? Well, two things, at least, that I can see in the cross. It's a, it's a demonstration of a, it's a sacrificial love that gives up power, doesn't seek to get power. So that's what it is. God had all the power in the world. He could have called down legions of angels and blown away the Roman uh, 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 armies that crucified him. You know, uh, humiliated the religious establishment that, that started this whole trial in the first place. In other words, he had all power. He also was, happened to be right. But he didn't do that. So what the cross tells me as a value system is it's someone who says, I'm not going to seek power I'm going to, it doesn't make sense to us, that's why I think it's foolish, I'm going to give up power. And I'm not going to seek to be served, come shine my shoes, come give me money, come bow down before me uh, in, in you know, fear and trembling. I could have done that if I'm God. I'm not going to seek to be served, which he deserves. He came to serve. Because you want to be a Christian? You want to know the heart of God? You know what the, the message of the cross is about? It's about giving up power, not getting power. It's about serving, not being served. Now apply that to your marriage. 
Apply that to the way you go to work every day. Apply that to the way you talk to your neighbors. Apply that to the way you have arguments with people about politics, okay? That's what it means. The gospel is a new way of knowing. When Jesus Christ said to his disciples later, pick up your cross and follow me, that's what he was talking about. It wasn't an invitation, you know this, to martyrdom. Some people did experience martyrdom, apostles, others. But that's not what Jesus was saying because he still says that to you and me. Pick up your cross and follow me means it's inviting you and I to this kind of living. A transformed set of values that looks at world as looks at everything I do, my set of relationships, the way I enter the world, the way I make my way in the world as a place where I can give up power, not get power. A place where I can go and serve and not be served. So much of our trouble, so much of our frustration, so much of the brokenness in the world and in my life, in your world, is because we don't understand that. Because it's human nature to want to get power and to be served. Only the gospel can change your mind. Only the gospel can change your will. Only the gospel can ultimately change the deepest part of who you are to live a different way. That's what Paul's trying to say. The gospel is a new way of knowing. Second, the gospel brings a new way of being into the world. There's so much here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, this is a, a year of sermons in five minutes or ten minutes, okay? Let's read the rest of this passage. Verse 26. He's not done yet. Brothers and sisters. See? He makes an appeal. He's talking to Christians here. It's not an evangelism message. It's trying to help Christians understand what happened to them. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. It's, another, it's a metaphor or a way of talking about when you became a Christian. Think of what you were. Where'd you come from? How'd you stumble your way into the church this morning? How did you become a Christian? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Maybe a few, but most of you aren't. Not many of you were of noble birth. Talking about the church in Corinth. But listen, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He said, listen, God has a plan. It's far beyond anything you ever thought about. God has a plan. They didn't figure it out at Harvard Business School. God has a plan. They didn't figure it out in uh, ancient Corinth, in Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. It's, it's a completely different um, channel and understanding of the way things work. God did this to make a point. It is because of, excuse me, uh, uh, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. This is key. That no one may boast before him. The, that's why God could not be achieved. The way to understand to know God was not through pursuit of deeper philosophical truths. Because then somebody would say, I found it. I figured it out. I, I found the great parchment. I found the hidden scroll. I found the great deeper teaching. Now let me teach you. Okay? So that no one may boast in his, but no one may boast before him. It is because of him, speaking of God. It's because of what God did. He chose you. That you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us. Now he's having fun with them. You want, you want wisdom? That's your big hunger. He has become for us wisdom from God. Now, Dash, what does that mean? So we don't get on the wrong channel and go, well, 
God's going to give you this higher learning. God, Jesus Christ used to become wisdom from God. That is, let me tell you what wisdom is. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus Christ lived the life that you couldn't live. He never made it. He, he, he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Jesus Christ gives you the spirit of Jesus, the sanctifying spirit to make you more like him. He redeems your life one day at a time, one decision at a time, one attitude at a time. That's wisdom. Therefore, as it is written, let the one, no, let, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Quickly, what's going on here? This, these verses that I just read, just the verses that we read this morning, are bookended by two Old Testament passages. I'm not going to go into them, but we read them both, verse 19 and verse 31, okay? And these are both from the prophets. And what he's trying to do is this, I think, or one of the things Paul is trying to do in quoting these two Old Testament prophets is this. He's trying to help make the point that people in the church, not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble, talking about the congregation in Corinth, that people in the church find their way into God's kingdom the same way the nation of Israel did. Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were chosen. They were chosen. Paul's, he's using old, but God chose, but God chose, but God chose. This is grace at its greatest. It's called the doctrine of election. You know what the word elect, God elects it. You're going to do that today. I'm going to elect to eat this. I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to take this road. I'm not going to take. It's a choice. And he's saying, listen, the world's at a level playing field. Get over yourself. It's not about how smart you are, what family you grew up in. There's people that grew up in Christian families that left the faith. There's people that were as far away from God in, a, in some atheist, non-Christian corner of the world that are, that are exemplar followers of Jesus. God chose. Think about what the Bible teaches. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. We are dead. He doesn't mean you're physically dead. Paul's, he's saying you are spiritually dead. You are incapable. I am incapable of making a decision about God, about faith, without a, a work of God in your life first. That's what it means. But here's the thing about this doctrine of election. Paul used another big word in another letter called predestination. This big doctrine is not meant to scare you or to confuse you. See, because now what you're doing is you're trying to ask those questions you can't answer. You want an answer to that question? You got to be a lot smarter if you want. You, God, God can answer that question for you. But the gap between you and God and me and God and your five-year-old son and your 20-year-old son is unbelievably immense. Okay? Unbelievably immense. The doctrine of election is not meant to scare you. It's meant to humble you. It's not to fill you with pride. It's to fill you with joy. So much more I could say. Moses if you're a note taker, Deuteronomy 7. He's given this same sermon that I'm giving to the nation of Israel who fumbled in the first generation. They're about to go into the promised land. 
And Moses says to them, let me give you some good advice. Don't make the mistake, mistake your parents did. Don't get confused. Don't get full of pride. Don't, don't think you're better than other people. Oh my goodness, they completely blew it. This is what I want you to know. God chose you, the nation. Now, now you're two million strong, but when God first chose you, it was just an old man and an old woman living in an obscure place in the Middle East. But he said, now you're two million strong. But let me tell you something. Moses says, I want you to know who you are. God did not choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations in Canaan. He said, as a matter of fact, you were the smallest one. You were the most unimpressive one. You were the shortest one. You were the most unattractive. If, if someone was going to use the world's wisdom to say, I'm going to build a community out of somebody, you would have been last. But God doesn't work the way the world works. God's trying to shame the wise. God's trying to... Um, you know, say, the, about, say something about who he is. He's trying to get everybody's attention and say, it's not, it's not about a ladder mentality. You want to know who I am? This is who I am. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. From the smartest to the least smart, or it's a level playing field. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. This is the heart of reality in life. That's what he's trying to say. The whole story of the Old Testament is the story of God making the unlikely choice between the, uh, the old couple to have a start a family, 90 years old. It's how the Bible begins, Genesis 12. The barren women to have important children, Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth. Who would do that? God. Or choosing, purposefully choosing the younger son in a culture, to carry on the blessing, in a culture, the, the, the law of primogeniture, it's just a big word that means the culture was built around, even our culture today, there's, there's, there's residual effects of this in the world today. This is talking about thousands of years ago. That the older son got the double part of the inheritance that was hardwired into humanity. Didn't matter. If you were son number two or three, didn't matter if you said, I've got better SATs than he did. I'm a better quarterback than he is. I'm smarter than he is. I'm, I'm more loyal to my father than he is. This jerk brother of mine shouldn't get any of those things. That happened a thousand times in the history of Israel. But it didn't matter. It was the, it, in the sense of the culture. But God says, I'm not going to work that way. I'm going to mess it up. Esau's the older, but I'm going to choose Jacob. Boy, that would cause a lot of trouble. Joseph's, Joseph, my goodness, Joseph was chosen, major figure at the end of the book. Joseph, guess what number he was? 11. 11. 11? How could number, no wonder his brothers were mad at him. How about David? How about David? Finally going to choose the king of Israel. Great. Let's get David in here. Um, Samuel goes on this, you know, a, a, a secret mission to go choose the king of Israel. It's all under the, uh, under the cloak of secrecy because Saul would, would be very angry, the current king, why they're anointing the next king. And Samuel goes, all right, bring your sons out. Okay. 
he brings out seven sons. One's more strapping. In fact, if you read the 2 Samuel 16 or 1 Samuel 16, if you're a note taker, Samuel's, you know, Samuel's, uh, 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 he has him at hello. The first son comes out, he goes, this is the one. Oh my goodness, he's 6'2", he's handsome, he's, he's muscular, he's, he looks like a king. It's a paraphrase, but it's not that far off. Okay? That says, he's one. And then the Lord says to him, no, okay. Number two, goes all the way down to seven. They're all you know, exemplary figures, and they look king-like. And Samuel says, okay, that's it. And then, he's, and then but the Lord says, no, 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 no. And he says, um, hmm. He said, uh, do you have any others? Because here, wait for it. The Lord has not chosen any of these. It's a choice. God's making a point. No. Well, yeah, I got one other son. I didn't bother calling him. He's, just, he's not even fully grown. He's, he's a mess, and he's, you know, he's kind of one of these flighty guys who sing songs out in the shepherd. Thing. You know, I mean, I didn't think it would be worth calling him. Well, Samuel said the same thing, but he goes, you know, we can't eat until you call him because the Lord. Uh, so David comes, and he says, this is the one. Okay? This is the way God works. Okay? The whole story of the Old Testament is the making, God making the unlikely choice. It's about grace. It's about election. It should humble you. And let me give you one more. How about Jesus? Jesus. It's like I've done saying. This is a revelation about who God is. When Jesus Christ was having his big, let's call it his um, going public moment in John's gospel, John chapter 7, he's going to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a big deal. It's, I don't know what the equivalent would be. It's his big going public moment. And his brothers, he had brothers and sisters, Jesus, right, from Joseph and Mary. And they said to him, hey, this is your big moment. They even understood it. They were kind of tongue-in-cheek. I'm not sure that they really knew who he was and thought he was full of himself. And Not really, but they thought he's so good. I, we did, they didn't like him at first, right? They said, Jesus, uh, uh, you, should, you should make a big splash. Get down there. This is your big moment. And of course, Jesus, that's not how Jesus rolled. So he said, no, you go. And he went later, and he did give a great sermon. It's called the Light of the World Sermon. But after the religious leaders say this, John chapter, I think it's John chapter 7, they say, huh, like the buzz was that he was from God. And they say, even, even that he might be the Messiah, it says, how could the Messiah... John 7, 41, come from Galilee. In other words, Galilee is a backwater. Galilee is, there's no colleges in Galilee. There's no, uh, you know, uh, fancy malls in Galilee. There's, there, nobody comes from Galilee. That's a, that's a backwater. How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Because God's ways are not your ways. The gospel is a new way of knowing. The gospel is a new way of being. And here's where it is. You know, it's boasting. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a new way of being, is the end of boasting. That's the point. It's the end of boasting. I've come back to this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 to 31, more than any other passage in my life, I mean as a minister, but as a Christian, but especially as a minister, in my mind, I've come back to it more and more. More than any other passage in all the Bible. Why? 
because there's many, many times that I say to myself, You're, you don't have what it takes. Who do you think you are? Um, um, you know, you need to quit. You need to, you, you need to, but I have to say to myself, Lord, remember who you were when you were called. I didn't choose you, Rob, because you were the best candidate to, do, to be a minister of the God. I didn't say why I chose you. Don't get over it. Not many wise, not many noble, not more influential. That's not why. I didn't choose you because of what you could bring to the table. So take a breath. I chose you because of what I can bring to the table and do through you, back to my original friend, if you're willing to trust me. Okay? If you're willing to trust me. The gospel, last point, is God's means to save those who believe. That's what he's really saying here. For since in the wisdom of God, which he's, he's playing with the word wisdom, he's saying God's wisdom, quote, quotes, think air quotes around that. In the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, couldn't know him. Okay? It's like I was saying to my friend. Could not know him. God was pleased, see, he has his own way, through the foolishness of what was preached, the message of the cross, to save those who believe. There's only two kinds of people in the world, according to this passage. It's no longer Jews and Gentiles. It used to be a big race issue. The whole Old Testament, a lot of the New Testament's still there. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. And, and it's this, this race thing. See, but it takes a long time for you and I, that is humanity, to catch up. With, with God's already changed the subject. He's already changed the plan, but we're still living in the old world. And, and, and here he's saying, listen, there's only two kinds of people in the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Now, now that the cross has come, God has done it. He didn't ask your permission. He did it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intervention. It's already over. And he said, there's those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Period. I don't care what what country you came from, I don't care what college you went to or didn't go to, your skin color, whatever, it makes no difference whatsoever. There's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are perishing, who are clinging to the old world, and those who are being saved. And even according to this passage, he says, it's the gospel is, is God, God brought the gospel to the world that you might believe, that they might believe. God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to um, that to save some who would believe. But even belief, I'm going to say to you, is a gift of God. I've used this metaphor before. It's not mine. It's like God kissing you awake. But when God kisses you awake, to use another a, a, an Old Testament, a New Testament phrase, he makes you alive in Christ. That's not the end. That's setting you up for making a decision. Right? In a manner of speaking, even the logic of John 3 is another sermon. You're, you're born again, John 3, 3. You believe, John 3, 16. In other words, God has to awaken you first. That's his sovereign. God chose the foolish things of the world. But you and I do have a role. If God has kissed you awake, I don't know, then you have to believe. You do have a role. It's like I said to my friend, listen, You'd have to be as smart as God for him to answer all of your questions. But maybe you should just decide to trust him. Amen? So let's, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Okay? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right here, right now.
in this room or in your home. If you'd say, Rob, I've been to church many times, but I feel like God has kissed me awake today somehow. And I believe, I see the cross, I see the death, I see the resurrection, I see the amazing gift of God, and somehow, some way, I believe God is calling me, right? In the foolishness of preaching, he saves those who believe, and I want to believe. All you need to do then is simply exercise simple belief. If we, Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, it's in him we have, we have the wisdom of God. Righteousness, holiness, redemption. I believe that God did this for me. He intervened for me. He sent Jesus for me. If you believe that, all you need to do is ask for it. Say these words privately in your own heart, in your own home. God, thank you for giving me life and now giving me an open heart, waking me up to, to the truth of the gospel, to the love of God, to the salvation that was achieved on the cross in the resurrection. Thank you, God, that all you want from me is a, is a yes. I, I, I come to you now by faith. I trust and receive this great gift of God's um, love and forgiveness in Jesus. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you prayed that prayer, I would just like to know about it and pray for you. Just slip your hand up in this room. Thank you. Just slip it up. Thank you, thank you. Up and down, thank you. Father, I thank you for these friends, maybe those at home. Please, if you're home, you can let us know that on the chat. We just want to pray for you. I pray you would make yourself known to them. Lord, do what you promise. Send your Holy Spirit, we pray, to these men and women, young and old. Help them to know, um, Lord, the wonderful gospel, the grace, the salvation that you would bring. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.